0: Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Rachel B. Gross to talk about nostalgia and lived religion in American Jewish life, which is the focus of her recent book titled Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as Religious Practice. Rachel B. Gross is assistant professor and the John and Marcia Goldman chair in American Jewish Studies. In the Department of Jewish Studies at San Francisco State University. I'm so excited to welcome Rachel onto the podcast and to talk with her about her book, Beyond the Synagogue. Rachel talks about a variety of ways in which American Jews connect to their past through nostalgia, historical museums like the Eldridge Street Synagogue in New York's Lower East Side, genealogy, children's books and dolls and delis and other foodways. As she argues, nostalgia actually offers a kind of lived religious practice, even if it's beyond the synagogue. Following the 2013 Pew Study of American Jews, which identified about 20% of American Jews as Jews of no religion, this book asks us to rethink what is religion in American Jewish life, and how it is that Jews who aren't affiliated with institutionalized religious life, still access and interact with Judaism in a myriad of ways. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation about American Jewish nostalgia and religion. I hope you'll also check out Rachel's book, Beyond the Synagogue, and I've posted a link to an excerpt in the show notes too. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, this is really, I think, fantastic to have you join us and talk to us about your book, which is just such a fun book. It's such an interesting approach. And it might be great to start out by talking about the title of the book, which is to say that this is like the best kind of title, where you look at the title and you understand immediately what the book is about and what the argument is from the beginning. You talk about Jewish religion beyond the synagogue, you know, so can you say a bit about what is the meaning of the big idea here? You know, that that comes out in this idea that you're talking about religion outside of the synagogue and what is a powerful example that really illustrates this trend that you're thinking about?
1: So, the book is about American Jews nostalgia for Eastern European immigration to the United States around the turn of the century and how American Jews have represented and institutionalized that nostalgia. I look at four case studies from the 1970s to the present, and I'm making an argument that nostalgia has become a way of American Jewish religious practice. So I'm not saying that traditional forms of Jewish religion and community organization aren't important. I really like the term beyond because I, I think it encompasses the synagogue and also includes things beyond it. I'm I'm not saying that synagogue practice is over in any way. I think that the forms of religion that I'm looking at in this book are compatible with traditional forms of Jewish religious practice. So building on many American religious history scholars, basically, I think of religion as things that are meaningful to people. I think about religion as texts and practices and even emotions that connect us to big stories and big relationships. So relationships with the divine, relationships with our communities in the present, relationships with ancestors. So I'm looking at the big ways that American Jews find meaning as individuals, as families, and as communities in their lives.
0: Yeah, so like what's like a like a really powerful example there that of some of the ways in which like you said people find religious meaning outside of the walls of the synagogue.
1: Yeah. So right on the (laughs) cover of my book is the stained glass window of the museum at Eldridge Street, which is a synagogue on the Lower East Side. And the narrative of religion that I'm looking at is the ways that people connect to the story of immigration of Central and Eastern Europeans to the United States, and really the way that they feel about that part of American Jewish history and the way that they're taught to feel about that part of American Jewish history. So I look at institutions that that shape that feeling. One category of the institutions that I look at are historic synagogues that are used as museums that tell this story. One of those is the museum at Eldridge Street on the Lower East Side, and I think that they shape the way visitors and staff members and philanthropists use this space to feel a certain way about a particular moment in American Jewish history. So the story that I begin the book with is, is one of my favorite moments from my research. A really powerful moment, I think, in the tours of this grand and beautiful synagogue that had fallen into disrepair and was restored from the 1980s to the present. When people went on tours at the museum at Eldridge Street, they would listen to a story of the history of this congregation. It's the first synagogue building built from the ground up on the Lower East Side by Eastern European Jews um, from the 1880s. And they would listen to this history of the synagogue, of the original congregation, of the way it fell into disrepair over the course of the of the mid 20th century, and then was gradually reclaimed and renovated by preservationists from the 1980s to the present. And after listening to this story, Tourists um, will be shown out of the sanctuary and walk back out of the sanctuary to be led somewhere else on the tour. And the docents at the Museum at Elchurch Street pause right at the back of the sanctuary. And they'll say, do you see these indentations in the floorboards? And people say, yes. Okay, why don't you step into the indentations in the floorboards? And people do, and they gradually find themselves lined up in straight lines. And the docent will say, well, it turns out these are these are soft pine floorboards. And over the years, the men, because this was a synagogue that had gender segregation of the synagogue, over the years... Men stood in front of their pews and shuckled, moved back and forth as they were praying. And gradually they wore grooves into the soft pine floorboards. So the preservationists of the synagogue chose not to restore the floorboards, but to keep those indentations. So you, tourists are literally standing in the footprints of past congregants at this synagogue. So I think that is such a, a wonderful and smart moment of public history. It's one that that visitors always find really powerful because it's a material and really it's an embodied connection between them and the original congregants. And I think it's really emotional. It's an effective emotional connection between them and the story of these immigrant congregants. And what I'm really interested in is how American Jews feel that connection, the importance of feeling that connection to a particular moment in history and the way that they're taught to feel this longing for the past, for a particular moment in the past.
0: Yeah. The book is called Beyond the Synagogue, but actually you're starting at a synagogue. You know, can you maybe like explain a bit about a certain irony that's going on here. Like, or how are you recategorizing the Eldridge Street Synagogue when you're saying that this is, you know, it's in a synagogue, but it's beyond the synagogue?
1: Exactly. Exactly. There, There certainly is something ironic there. And I think that really gets to my point that I'm not interested in suggesting that synagogue worship, synagogue services aren't important or synagogue communities aren't important, but I think there are New ways that American Jews are finding meaning in their lives that can overlap with earlier forms of, or older forms of religious practice. In this case, this is a building that is run. By a museum, and also in this case, has an active congregation that still meets there for services. And they think about the space, not all historic synagogues that are open to the public think about themselves this way, but the organizations at this building think about the space as this is a space that is sometimes operating as a museum, and this is a space that is sometimes operating as a synagogue with a congregation. So in that moment, it's the synagogue building being used for a new purpose, I would argue a new religious purpose. And actually, that's how I got started on this work. The book comes out of my dissertation. And before that, it has its origins in my master's thesis on historic synagogues that were used as museums i was really interested in the idea of of what's going on at historic synagogues that are used as museums are they are they a synagogue or are they a museum if you think about the black and white image like is it a woman or is it a duck <laughs> like which one is it what's going on here and that that repurposing i think is so Powerful to me that the materials are being used in a new way. I don't think it would be right to think about this as a decline in religion, but a new form of religion, because this is a moment that American Jews are connecting to community, to ancestry, to major ways that we practice religion.
0: I mean, I think that the key term um, that comes out is about nostalgia. So, what do you mean when you talk about nostalgia? And how do you see it as a form of religious practice to reconnect with the past in these new ways, even in spaces that used to have, and that in some respects might still have a certain kind of religious importance? You're saying that this meaning has changed. What is the place of nostalgia in terms of your thinking of this transformation of religion?
1: Yeah. So I think of nostalgia as a sentimental longing for something that's irrevocably past that's a line that always makes me laugh because of course the past is is always irrevocably past. That's <laughs> literally how time works. In the case of nostalgia, it's about longing for the fact, and, and it's feeling that pang for the fact that, that the past is irrevocably past. It's the longing, it's the emotional connection for it. I don't think that all nostalgia is religion, but I think that this form of nostalgia, American Jews' nostalgia for Central and Eastern European Jewish immigration at the turn of the century to the United States, has become institutionalized, really, as a, as a form of religion, that American Jews are not just feeling this connection on their own, but are taught to feel a longing for this moment in particular ways, through particular institutions like historic synagogues.
0: What is it that makes these kinds of experiences religious? You know, as you write about in the book, Scholars of religion have identified how everything is, is a religion, whether you're talking about baseball, whether you're talking about, I don't know, pancakes, you know, or, or anything, you know, anything can be seen through the lens of religion. And so when you think about the examples that, that you are looking at, whether that's historic synagogues or things like a deli or children's books or whatever, what is it that makes these things religious or a religion in your view?
1: I think about religion as practices, texts, materials that connect us to big and meaningful relationships in our lives, to the divine, to sacred figures, to communities in the present, to ancestors. And in doing so, I'm really building on religious studies scholar Robert Orsi's work on how he thinks about religion. He studies Catholic communities, so he really emphasizes Catholics' relationships to sacred figures. And I think that each of these types of relationships can be emphasized to a greater or lesser degree. In, in any kind of practice. So the relationships that I'm mostly looking at in this book are about Jews' relationships to community in the present and to their ancestors. I think that those are big and meaningful relationships. So when I think about some of the children's books I'm studying that tell stories of Eastern European immigration, it's not necessarily just somebody reading a book to their kid, which, you know, is is lovely and important. But I think that that book then can become a vehicle of connection between that family. And depending on on that particular family, it, it might connect that family to their ancestry and to a big narrative in American Jewish history. And I think that placing ourselves emotionally in a narrative of history, to me, that's a form of religion. Sometimes scholars think about the differences between history and memory and, you know, a scholarly history versus a kind of active communal memory. The way I think about nostalgia is it's that emotional connection to the past that, that helps us place ourselves and through emotion helps us connect to the past in a way that, that maybe other forms of memory work might or might not.
0: You're saying some things about a number of specific case studies in in American Jewish culture, American Jewish religion, but you're also indicating a way of thinking about how American Jewish religion has changed over time. You know, I think that that we we talk about the way in which history, you know, or rather memory comes to have a, a kind of religious valence to it. One can talk about this with regards to various Jewish holidays that commemorate quote-unquote historical events. You know, thinking about Passover, for instance, right? History and memory are intrinsically connected with elements of the Jewish religion, traditionally speaking, you know, however historical or ahistorical those events may actually be. Um, But the point of what I'm saying is that I think that you're talking about a way in which connecting with the past, whether that's through history or through memory, right? But in in this mode of nostalgia comes to have this religious importance. What is going on here in terms of the transformation of religion, the changing meaning of ritual, the changing meaning of ritual spaces, and the connection with the past, especially in the aftermath of the Holocaust?
1: I think you're absolutely right to place this work that I'm thinking about in terms of holidays and especially in terms of Passover Passover comes up a lot in my work on Jewish genealogists. And I think there's a really great analogy there that the genealogists I think about make explicit that Jews on Passover read the Haggadah and say, it's as if I personally came forth out of Egypt. One of the genealogists that I look at Arthur Kurzweil gives talks and and writes in his book that it's as if he personally came out of Dobromil, his ancestral town in Poland. So he explicitly draws that connection. And I think American Jews are used to, in some ways, placing themselves in, in a ritualized history. And what I'm looking at is the way that this moment in American Jewish history has become a ritualized history. It's not that those holidays are going away, but that that this is another moment that has become institutionalized and ritualized and performed in that emotional connection, much like we do in Passover, though possibly really more immediately because it, it's a little bit hard to have a nostalgia. For the mythical ancient story of Passover, but this is a moment that that one can feel a much more immediate connection for the a moment of uh, about a hundred to a hundred and fifty years ago is something that's that's long enough ago that it can become mythologized, but it's also immediate enough that one can feel a real immediate emotional connection to it.
0: I'm thinking about you know, the 2013 Pew study about the nature and the status of the American Jewish population, which identified, you know, I think it was about 20%, 22% of American Jews as Jews of no religion. Um, And this of course is playing into a a wider trend of the emergence of what we would call religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right? People who say that they have no religion. And so of course, Jews, like everybody else, will have a group that are people of no religion. And so the study identified that there was a certain segment of Jews of no religion. And you're saying that these religious nuns actually have a kind of religion. So why is it so important for you, especially in that context, to talk about nostalgia as religious practice?
1: So as a religious study scholar, I find religion a really fruitful mode of analysis. And I think it would be worthwhile to go around labeling all kinds of things as religion for its own sake. But it also really matters. And it matters financially. Studies like the Pew study that define what counts as religion and what doesn't count affect American Jewish philanthropic giving on a major scale. More immediately than that as well, it's a statement about what matters in American Jewish communities. And I would point out what gets labeled as Religion isn't just things that typically count as religion, isn't just synagogue services, but it's really about American Jewish institutional insider status. So if you give to a federation, if you go to a Jewish community center, um, those aren't necessarily things that one would strictly with a really traditional definition of religion count as religious, but they get folded in into the American Jewish sense of legacy religious institutions. And this is really coming out of a moment from the mid-20th century, how American Jewish communities were formed in the 1950s and following, which was a moment when more Americans in general went to services, certainly the moment when more American Jews than ever went to services. And I think we should think about the 1950s not as the model But as a historical anomaly. But it it doesn't make sense to say, hey, synagogue services have declined since the 1950s. It makes much more sense to say the 1950s were a moment of very strange religious practice, were an anomaly in American religion in general. So I think that looking broadly at a variety of practices of American Jews and calling them religion might reshape our communal institutional priorities, it also, on a personal level, points to what is important in people's lives and really the institutions that are shaping them. And I'm pointing out that actually other types of institutions are shaping American Jewish communities. So things like Jewish genealogical societies, museums, and I look at a particular type of museum, You might not think of children's books as an institution, but in fact, they are shaped by numerous institutions, including publishing houses, I think are shaping our lives. And certainly PJ Library, an organization that gives free books and music to Jewish and interfaith families, I think is the most important American Jewish communal institution out there, wildly understudied. And finally, I think about things like delis and other types of restaurants as forms of public history, places we tell our stories and places we form our communities. So it matters in terms of money. It matters in terms of how Jewish community leaders are looking at American Jews. And I I would hope it matters to American Jews to help them think about where they're finding meaning and where they're finding community in their lives.
0: Part of what you're getting at here is the way in which the emergence of a nostalgia culture, especially in the aftermath of the Holocaust, you know, in the 1960s, you know, and beyond, relates to a kind of culture of crisis in the institutionalized American Jewish leadership and and life. You mentioned how people may look back on the 50s and say, since then, synagogue membership has declined or whatever, and then try to act on that basis of their definition of religion in a very specific and narrow way. How is the nostalgia culture related to this broader crisis culture, which manifests itself eventually in many forms, but but eventually in the Pew study of 2013, which again, set off this huge conversation in many areas of of the American Jewish world of people basically in fear for the future of Jewish life. So how are these things connected to each other?
1: Your question makes me think of one of my favorite photographs of American Jews ever um which is in the Center for Jewish History Archives I believe it's in the AJHS archives and it's a photo of UJA Federation of New York and it's a couple of folks literally ringing a crisis bell there is a giant bell <laughs> and they are ringing it and it's labeled crisis bell it speaks to the ways that American Jewish community leaders and and some scholars of American Jews have wanted to think about American Jews in crisis. And I don't. My work, I think, is pointing out that American Jewish life is flourishing. And it is flourishing in maybe the places that you haven't been looking. So looking at declining synagogue membership isn't going to tell you the full story of American Jewish life, but looking at other ways that people connect to Jewish history and to Jewish community in the present. For example, um, very few studies, um, either national studies of American Jews or community studies measure Jews' attendance at Jewish museums, which I think I'm certainly not the first to argue that Jewish museums are a major place that American Jews are telling their stories and performing rituals of various kinds and and finding meaning and community. I'm definitely not the first one to point this out. And yet we haven't been measuring that. I believe that there was one Baltimore community study that measured Jewish museum attendance. And um, Baltimore, of course, has a wonderful Jewish Museum of Maryland. And they found that Jews across the religious spectrum, if one wants to call it that, attend museums at roughly the same rate. That's part of what I'm pointing out. This is not actually a book about religious nuns. Um, I'm not just pointing out that people who you might not think of having religious practices actually, I think, have religious practices. But the nostalgic practices that I'm looking at are practiced across the board of the religious spectrum, that these are actually things that unite American Jews, for better or for worse. There There are certainly important critiques to be made about the nostalgia that I'm looking at. But this way of connecting to American Jewish community, to American Jewish meaning, and to American Jewish history is something that American Jews do regardless of whether they are synagogue members or members of a Jewish community center. It's not practiced by all American Jews, but these are things that are practiced by Orthodox Jews, by by liberal religious Jews, and by Jews who would not identify themselves as traditional religious Jews.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that when I think about those kinds of programs, PJ Library stands out as like one of the greatest examples of this in as much as, like you said, you were talking about museums. Well, someone has to choose to go into museum, actively, you know, dedicate time to do that. And PJ Library literally comes to your house. So there's a lot to think about there in terms of how programs like PJ Library, A, how it is that they reflect a sense of certain kinds of crises you know, whether they are real or imagined, you know, in their extent, you know, what PJ library represents there. And also this broader issue of how it is that Jews interact with Jewish culture, interact with Jewish religion, even when they don't go into the synagogue or when they certainly cannot, you know, like, you know, you imagine somebody with a young child, it's a lot harder to go to the synagogue, you know, in person. So, I mean, what is going on there as you're thinking about PJ library in general, as an institution, of American Jewish life and its relationship with this broader phenomenon of Judaism beyond the synagogue.
1: I am so fascinated by P.J. Library. I believe that I am the first scholar to write about PJ library, independent of my book. I have a a chapter in an edited volume about PJ library and making the argument um, that you will not be surprised to learn that I think they are doing religious work, even though staff members at PJ library for a variety of reasons would deny that.
0: Yeah. And I'll add, by the way, that it has a great title also, right? People of the Picture (laughs) book, right? Like, I think that it's such a fascinating aspect. Of American Jewish culture. Um, anyway, go on. Yeah.
1: So I I would say to your point about having to go somewhere, I one does have to sign up for PJ Library or perhaps be signed up um, for PJ Library. I know many grandparents will sign up their their kids. A PJ Library is really interesting because it does come out of a perceived crisis, and it also intersects with legacy. Jewish institutions. So, PJ Library is a national, now an international organization founded by the philanthropist Harold Grinspoon, who looked at not the Pew study, but an earlier national Jewish community study and said, How can we reach what were then called assimilated Jews? Now, with the Pew study, we might say Jews of no religion both terms are ones that I would push back on. Um, But it actually serves my point because it doesn't just reach folks who would identify themselves uh, as assimilated or Jews of no religion. It actually reaches Jews across the board and sends books and, and stories to Jews and to Jewish families and really Shapes them, I think. This isn't just me saying that that P.J. Library is is shaping Jewish families, but they do their own social scientific studies and they have evidence of the ways that they are shaping and influencing Jewish practices, often to draw them into recognizably religious practices to connect them to their local synagogue or other local Jewish community organizations or to form New forms of community. They often encourage families to to form connections among themselves, and and this varies um, from community to community. One signs up or is signed up for a PJ Library through a pre-existing local Jewish organization. So that might be a synagogue or a federation. In my book, I'm looking particularly at the stories that they distribute about stories of of Central and Eastern European immigration. That is that is definitely not the only type of story that they sent out, but but that's what I'm looking at in the study. What's so interesting to me about PJ Library is it's not just books going out to families to be read, perhaps, you know, if a child's a little bit older, to be read by the child, but they really emphasize, they really encourage families to read these books together, that what they're interested in, and actually what I'm interested in as well, is that family moment, that intimate moment of reading a story. And I I know from parents of young children that that might be an exhausted moment, that, that you might be reaching for a PJ Library book at bedtime when you are too tired to make a decision on your own. That moment of intimacy between parents and children, is then, I think, deployed to create an intimacy with this moment of American Jewish history as well.
0: As a parent of young children and somebody who gets more P.J. Library books in the mail than we know what to do with, it's an omnipresent thing. You know, like I said, when when you have two kids, that means you get two books a month. That adds up really fast. And you know, how many times can we read, you know, Param is coming or or something like that? You know, there's so much to say about this, you know, broadly speaking. In the book, you are focusing specifically on picture books that relate to the immigration narrative, you know, the Eastern European immigration narrative. But there's something broader here about nostalgia, which is to say that I think that that part of what you're thinking about with regards to nostalgia has to do with people's personal connections with the past. In as much as you know, somebody might feel a connection with the immigrant experience because their grandparents or great grandparents went through that process. And something that I, I hope that we'll get to towards the end of our conversation is that this does not represent the entire American Jewish population. So that's I want to table that for a moment. But when we think about this process of making nostalgia, right, cultivating nostalgia, a lot of it has to do with having a sense of yourself in connection with that. And so like you said this process of parents reading their children books also helps to generate nostalgia in as much as it is building a connection you know between children and their parents and through the medium of of religion
1: absolutely and teaches nostalgia right a lot of times people think about nostalgia and actually much of the literature on uh, most of the literature on nostalgia thinks about nostalgia as something that you can only feel for your own personal past experiences i happen to think that is is easily disproven that we feel nostalgia for all kinds of things that we have not Personally experienced, and that we are taught nostalgia by teachers, by books, by our parents, by institutions within and, and beyond this particular case study that I'm thinking about. But in terms of the books I'm thinking about in my book, there's they're explicitly designed to teach children this is an important narrative for you, regardless of, of your family history. And this is something you should feel an emotional connection for. I love that you mentioned that for many Ashkenazi American Jews, for whom this might be their family story, that their ancestors came from Central and Eastern Europe around the turn of the 20th century, most parents today, that that might not be their grandparents. That might be their great-grandparents of, of the parents who are reading these kids. And so for kids, it might be their great-great-grandparents or so on. And yet the books that I'm looking at consistently depict the immigrant generation as a grandparent. And I think that is so interesting. That's something I call an eternal grandparent in the book. That generational remove feels like the right remove from this moment in the past, that, that there's something warm and intimate that one feels towards one's grandparent's story. And so children who in in Gen Z are are many generations removed from the early 20th century are taught to feel this immediate connection as if this story happened to their own grandparents.
0: One of the things that interests me on on a very large scale is the process by which different historical events, different historical experiences Pass across the threshold of history and memory, when people write about, you know, for instance, the passing of the last veterans from the First World War, for instance, right? Well, all of a sudden, those entire experiences have passed out of living memory, you know, into a certain realm of history. The same thing can be said about the dwindling number of Holocaust survivors and the efforts of groups like the Shoah Foundation and the Fortunoff Archive at Yale uh, to try to capture those memories you know, in a personal form of the video testimony. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which we can talk about the attempts to try to keep memory alive. And when you talk about, you know, somebody who's five now, and it is their great, great grandparents who immigrated to America, for instance, or perhaps even before that, how do you make that feeling personable, right? When you never met that person, or perhaps, you know, your parents didn't know that person right you know so when i think about for instance you know the generation of great grandparents having immigrated to america well that's still your parents grandparents right you know the further you get away from these events the more they become history as opposed to being memory and i think the part of what you're talking about this notion of the eternal grandparent is a very powerful one for thinking about the active attempt to try to keep the memory of these events alive among people who are actually very far removed, historically speaking, from them.
1: Exactly. Exactly. One example of this that I find really powerful is The Always Prayer Shawl by Sheldon Oberman, which was distributed by PJ Library. It's the story of a boy growing up in Russia, Adam. Who has a relationship with his grandfather, and when his family immigrates to North America. Sheldon Oberman was actually Canadian, but he makes the story deliberately vague um, so that that it can seem generically North American. I'm I'm told by Canadians that this is a thing that often happens in Canadian culture. Um, So when Adam in the story immigrates to North America, his grandfather does not come with him and his parents, but his grandfather gives him his prayer shawl to take with him and adam he he grows up he becomes a grandfather himself and he wears this prayer shawl and and repairs it and teaches his grandson that as his grandfather told him some things change and some things don't and that the grandson promises that his own grandson will be named Adam. There's a, a weird way that the name is passed down in this story, but the talit also will be passed down. So there's a real imaginary of the material being passed down and a real imaginary of grandparental relationships being passed down in this really beautiful story. I, th- I think the story is really lovely on its own, but it's maybe deepened by knowing that Sheldon Oberman came up with the story as part of a bar mitzvah gift for his own son, that he himself never had much of a connection to his grandfather. He didn't care so much about it his grandfather's story when when he was a kid, when his grandfather passed away, when he was a young teenager, he was given his grandfather's prayer shawl and did not care so much about it. By the time of his son's bar mitzvah, he cared deeply about this story. And it was something that he wanted to pass on to his children, right? That that was the moment that he wanted to pass on that immediacy of that relationship to past generations. And he created a kind of elaborate ritual in which his son got a new prayer shawl and that had parts donated from the son's mother, Oberman's ex-wife and from the son's grandfather, Oberman's father, and Oberman himself donned at the moment that his son donned to the prayer shawl. His own prayer shawl Oberman donned his grandfather's prayer shawl and took on that physical relationship and that that emotional relationship to past generations. So it's it's really as you say about passing on that grandparental relationship, which seems like the right amount of immediacy, right? It's something that we can feel deeply, certainly our imagined relationship with our grandparents, if not a real one. And I I think that tension between real and imagined is really interesting. And yet that grandparent relationship has enough distance to be longing for their past, right? Um, That nostalgia is all about that tension between it's gone, but, like we want it. It's, it's really about tension with the past.
0: There's a lot going on in terms of what is the potential for that grandparent connection to give meaning to things. Uh, I mean, I mean the other thing that I want to ask about is genealogy, right? You're talking here about this idealization, the instrumentalization of the grandparent connection, right as a way to pass on and cultivate a sense of nostalgia. You know, whether or not that nostalgia is actually for your grandparents' generation or your great grandparents, or whatever, but genealogy is in, in many respects trying to go as far back into the past as you can go to people who you never would have ever had the chance to meet, and they might just be a name on a you know on a document or on a gravestone or or something. So, how is it that genealogy helps to cultivate a sense of nostalgia? And what is its role in Jewish culture? And, I, and I'm thinking here also about the ways in which genealogy plays other roles in different cultures, thinking about like Mormons, for instance, where genealogy is a very important part of their religious practice, actually. So what is the role of genealogy in American Judaism as part of this nostalgia process?
1: I'm so glad you brought up Mormons. Because Jewish genealogists actually explicitly learned a lot from Mormons about how to do Jewish genealogy. So doing genealogical research is an explicit religious practice for Mormons and is the largest group of Mormons, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, deals with genealogical records in a very particular way. My book begins with Jewish genealogists because I, I think of this development of institutionalized American Jewish nostalgia really as taking off in the 1970s, which is when Jewish genealogists began to think about their work in a concerted way. The 1970s were a moment when what we might call somewhat awkwardly white ethnics began to think about their culture and their communal histories more explicitly and more loudly. And they were largely inspired by the African American roots movement of the 1960s and 1970s, when African Americans began to articulate their history and culture in a particular way, including doing genealogical research, which for African Americans can be quite hard and complicated in different ways, of course. So in the 1970s, I think genealogy served for Jews, for you know Irish Americans, Italian Americans. The 1970s are a moment when they're realizing that they are being recognized as white in the United States, and they might have a lot of feelings about that. They might not be entirely comfortable with that. So identifying themselves as Italian Americans, Irish Americans, Jewish Americans, and diving into their Personal family histories, I think, is is really a way to navigate discomfort with whiteness in ways that are fruitful and ways that are pretty complicated as well. So the 1970s is the moment when Jewish genealogists look at the work that um, that Mormons are doing and and others and say, "Hey, this is really interesting. We can learn from this." But that Ashkenazi genealogy requires a certain set of skills especially before the fall of the Soviet Union, doing research in Eastern Europe was quite complicated, but it it also requires certain language skills and and knowledge of documents, and and you know this better than I do. But Jewish genealogists really thought about what was particular about doing this kind of family history research, and they formed groups and, and ultimately societies to share their knowledge with each other. And then as genealogy has become... Ever more popular and big business among both Jews and non-Jews, it becomes an activity that I think, like the other examples I look at in this book, of something you can do really seriously and and passionately. It, it can become your your full time endeavor, as it as it does for many folks who I studied for this book, um, who I interviewed and, and researched, or it can be something that you dip into, and I think that. Expanse is really interesting to me. It's the same thing with a deli, for instance, right? You can you can be a deli owner and and think about this as a as a way to tell your family story and a way to connect with Jewish history, or you can like pop by a deli and get a get a pastrami sandwich, right? You can tell a family story, or you could like pop onto ancestry.com for a moment to look up your family's records. And what I want to suggest is that actually. Doing something super briefly doesn't mean that it's not important that genealogy can be a full lifetime full-time endeavor, and that's super fascinating It tells us something important about the way American Jews are thinking about themselves and their families, but also popping onto ancestry.com for a minute can tell us that this is this is important to people too, and that even traditional religious practice might include something that we devote our entire selves to, or it can be just a momentary thing that is is part of our lives. And that quotidian, that everydayness, I think is not an argument for this not being important, but is actually the ways in which this functions as religion, that there are the everyday moments that sustain us and that point to how we understand ourselves in the world.
0: I mean, there's so much to dive into in terms of genealogy. I don't know if we have the time to, to really do that, the justice that it deserves. I'm just thinking about those genealogy groups on Facebook. Um, there's like a whole bunch of the Jewish genealogy groups. And so what is going on there in terms of this whole process of crowdsourcing and making meaning and community out of this process of genealogy, which on the one hand, it's a very individual process, right? You're tracing back your own lineage, but you're also coming to understand a communal story or a group narrative at the same time, specifically relating to Eastern European migration, but on a broader scale. So how does it is that an individual or, or individual family project comes to take on a wider meaning when it's part of a community that is very much beyond the synagogue?
1: When we do family history research and place ourselves within this narrative, it becomes something bigger. And what I've found, especially in online groups, is the prevalence of this particular narrative of Central and Eastern European Jews, that even as, as we've acknowledged in this conversation, this is not the story of all American Jews. So it is the story of a vast number, even a majority of American Jews. I have found that this story in genealogy, as in my other case studies, is overwhelming and sucks in people who might not have that family history. So for instance, Tracing the Tribe is one of the most popular Jewish genealogy Facebook groups. And it was started by a woman, Shelly Dardashti, who was beginning her own research by thinking about her husband's Persian Jewish ancestry. And yet the the major narrative of this Facebook group ends up becoming the story of Ashkenazi Jews that this is the story of Central and Eastern European Jews becomes the major narrative in which one's one needs to find oneself, regardless of one's ancestry. And again, for better or for worse.
0: What you've brought us to here, and I think this is in some respects a kind of the elephant in the room for this entire conversation that we've been having. So much of the nostalgia culture, especially that you talked about in the book, but that we've discussed so far, is really about the Eastern European immigrant past. So. What about other elements of Jewish nostalgia beyond that, beyond Eastern European Jews? And then also, to what extent can the toolkit and the framework that you're building in this book for thinking about Jewish nostalgia be applied to thinking about other groups in the American Jewish community? And I say this, you know, as like you mentioned, Persian Jews, right? You know, there are so many groups that don't fit into the kind of standard. Ashkenazi, or we might even say like Ashko-normative or whatever term we might want to use, notion of what is American Jewish culture or the American Jewish experience. And the boiling it down to the Eastern European immigration process oversimplifies it. It really elevates one group over all the other ones. And one might say, well, Ashkenazi Jews numerically are larger than everybody else in terms of the American Jewish population. But in what ways does this nostalgia process elbow out kind of everybody else? in terms of their own stories.
1: So, you're absolutely right that that's the elephant in the room. Sometimes I'll get reactions to my book that are, you know, why are you only focusing on this story? And actually, I think if one wants to point out the Ashkenormativity of the American Jewish community, the first thing one has to do is name it. And I I think that's what I'm doing in this book is naming how dominant this narrative is and it is for other folks scholars and activists and community members to do the work of taking what I've named and maybe what they've recognized and creating new stories right I'm wildly enthusiastic about learning about other stories of Jewish ancestry but the first thing we have to do I think is is name how prevalent this story is and it's it's Interesting to me because i haven 't found actually that it just elbows out other stories it 's so big and so dominant that it sucks other stories in so if one is an American Jew, one is supposed to relate to the story of Central and Eastern European Jews with nostalgia, regardless of one 's own ancestry um, that that this is an, a story that is taught by institutions through material culture, and to some extent, I think by families. For instance, at delis, which I think of again as vehicles of public history of this story of American Jews. And one thing I'm really interested in actually is side salads at delis, which might be a silly thing to be really interested in, but I think Israeli salad, Mizrahi salad, often shows up as a side dish at deli's. For the folks I study who think carefully about the stories that their food is telling, they might say, Hey, this is a really great way to be inclusive of other stories of other ancestries. And also, hey, some some, you know, tomato and cucumber salad actually can be a really refreshing side dish alongside your pastrami sandwich. And yet, this is both the story of other Jewish ancestries becoming a literal side dish and also being pulled into the story of American Jewish nostalgia. The other example where I think about this is I look at the Toro Synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. And the Toro Synagogue, as your listeners may know, is not a synagogue that tells the story of Central and Eastern European Jews. It's the oldest synagogue building in the United States created by Sephardi Jews in the colonial era, and yet I think the pattern in which its story is told is the same pattern I find in the synagogues created by Central and Eastern European Jewish immigrants much later. So I think it affects the patterns in which we tell American Jewish stories.
0: You've mentioned delis a couple times. I mean, I feel like we could have a different episode about each of these different things, you know, genealogy, synagogues, delis, and the kids' books— each of them is such a rich case study, but the deli is, is so fantastic. You know, because I think that, that it points to some of the ways in which a lot of the nostalgia that you are describing that you're talking about, it's not just about the Eastern European immigrant past, but it's also nostalgia for New York, right? And this is especially when we talk about the delis. Um, there was this article, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with it, even this in the New York Times, you know, in March of this year, you know, saying that the best bagels are are not in New York, but they're in California. And I can tell you that a lot of people, I think especially New Yorkers, didn't like that, right? Because they want to say they have the best bagels, right? Of course, you're in San Francisco, you probably can talk about some of the great bagels that are there. But the point being is that the the culture of the deli, the culture of the food, you know, foodways are a really important way of people connecting with the past. And, you know, this notion that the best bagels are in New York or something is tied in with this general nostalgia for New York, whether the best bagels are in New York or if they were in New York or or whatever. I mean, like, what is going on here in terms of this nostalgia for New York and its diaspora within the broader American Jewish cultural landscape, as well as the kind of nostalgia feeling that people might have as it relates to food and all sorts of other things?
1: That New York Times article specifically named Boychik Bagels in the East Bay, which coincidentally Emily Winston and her Boychik Bagels also appear in my book, because I think she is doing something really interesting where she wanted to create a bagel that explicitly tried to recreate the bagels of H&H, the the former New York um, bagel company. She's very explicit that her work is a nostalgia for New York. But actually, most of the folks I'm looking at in my chapter on delis and other foodways or or food businesses are actually thinking about nostalgia for Central and Eastern Europe in a really new and playful way, that they're saying, let's think about Ashkenazi foodways and let's bring them into the present moment. Let's combine that nostalgia With our contemporary values of sustainability and an emphasis on local foods and care for the earth. Um, So a lot of the places that I'm looking at, Sal's Deli here, also in the East Bay, uh, Mile End in New York, a couple of others, including Gefilteria, which is is not a storefront, but sells sustainable gefilte fish, which you can buy online and, and in some select stores. That they're thinking about let's let's create that that nostalgic connection to Central and Eastern Europe, sometimes via New York, but let's let's bring it into our present moment. So Saul's, for instance, explicitly says we are not a New York deli, and actually many of their customers come in and say, "Hey, you aren't a you were not a New York deli," and they say, "That's right, we're an East Bay deli," and we tell the story. They explicitly say, and I, I just think this is is so powerful. They say, we tell the story of American Jews coming from Central and Eastern Europe and to New York and keep going. They keep going until they hit Berkeley, California. And that's the story we're telling, that they are not interested in nostalgia for New York, but they are interested in telling the story of Ashkenazi Jews that culminates in Berkeley, California, that Berkeley becomes the apotheosis of Jewish history, not New York. But there is a tension. And I think that tension is, even in places like Sal's, customers will come in thinking about New York. And many deli owners told me that this was, this was wonderful in that customers are deeply emotionally invested in the work that they're doing and in the products they're selling. And yet many of those customers have not been to a New York deli in years, if ever, that it is an imagined New York deli. This book is really a book about the ways in which that American Jews' imagination for Central and Eastern Europe and that moment of immigration gets conflated with an imagination of those immigrants settling on the Lower East Side. So we as careful historians and and many of your listeners are careful historians would say those are radically different moments that you are talking about. But I think actually in the American Jewish imagination, Central and Eastern Europe and the moment of Jewish immigration in the United States, and in fact, the first couple decades of the 20th century gets conflated in American Jewish imaginaries.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that the difference between the real and imagined is so important here and I think here is where the bagel story really comes into it because as you mentioned H&H is no longer around. I used to live not too far from there if I recall they got shut down because of health code violations, right? But they haven't been around for a while. And yet when people imagine the New York bagel, they th- they think, I mean not everybody, right? But but H&H kind of stands out as the, you know, the most authentic quote unquote New York bagel and yet no one can really compare a 2021 bagel with an H&H bagel because you can never eat them side by side. It's the same way that you can't compare a meal that you're eating now with something that you ate in your grandmother's kitchen. You know, you can only compare the memory. And I think that this is really important because food is such a powerful, important way to draw out those memories, but it's also constantly changing. Like a while back, I had a really great interview with a couple of women who had written a cookbook of German-Jewish food in the book they had you know talked about this question of trying to find the ingredients for you know some of these recipes you know after you know fleeing from Germany and coming to the United States you know the specific kinds of ingredients just didn't exist you know maybe they aren't even being produced anymore and so this question of trying to recreate recipes to recreate food whether we're talking about you know a bagel or whether we're talking about anything else it's a very complicated process but it also has this space for connecting with the past that is very malleable and very changeable, and you may not even realize it.
1: Absolutely. And food is such a fascinating subject because it is necessarily ephemeral, right? That your your moment, your sensory moment of connection is very brief. You might be cooking it, you might be preparing it, um, you might be sitting down for a meal, but that moment of taste is actually quite brief. It's individual and particularistic. And yet what I'm interested in is actually is not so much food itself, but the ways we think about food and the ways that we think about food connecting us bodily to our ancestors and to our communities. We might think of food as, as particularly individual, but it is actually one of the most powerful tools we have for placing us in a broader narrative.
0: I wish we had a whole hour to continue that line of thought, because I I do think, like you said, food, it's ephemeral, right? But it's also kind of omnipresent. And I mean, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation where you were talking about what makes these things religious or what makes them religion. And I think about food in religious terms, right? You know, like not every single meal I eat or, or whatever, but like when we talk about cooking, there are certain rituals of preparation. There are you know, one can talk about the experience of eating a really unbelievable meal, right? You know, or something like that. You know, it may not be connected with something relating to, you know, something theological or anything like that, but it's definitely, there's a ritual to it. People can literally talk about like a coffee-making ritual, right? This is a totally separate realm of, of food, but but people use those terms to talk about certain kinds of food preparation. Um, So like, what is going on here when you're thinking about the connection between nostalgia Religion and material culture, whether that 's a, a long standing material culture, like something like a synagogue building, which can be preserved and it can stay there, or something which is very ephemeral, like food which which you make or somebody else makes it and then you eat it and then it 's gone
1: in both of these, even though we imagine that moment of connection in both the the synagogue story and in the food story we imagine that moment of direct connection and yet it is highly mediated it is in fact not actually a connection but a, a an imagined Connection that is mediated by institutions. That the, the museum is directing your emotions. It might be a restored building that they are they're directing your experience of this space. And I think the restaurateur or the chef or or whoever the staff member of the restaurant is directing the way that you are thinking and experiencing the past. One of the things that I want to suggest in this book is that we might think about American Jewish community leaders a little bit differently. That folks like staff members at historic synagogues and restaurateurs are not thought of as American Jewish community leaders. And yet, they're the folks who are directing American Jewish emotions, and in fact, telling American Jewish stories. This is maybe a little bit more obvious for the staff members at historic synagogues, but we don't normally think about restaurateurs as public historians, as as the people who tell American Jewish histories. And yet, I think they do it in really creative ways, sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly at their restaurants on their packaging.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about the Jewish Museum in New York on the east side and the fact that they have, you know, a, a deli. In the museum you know russ and daughters they have, they have a branch there uh, i mean th- there's obviously so much to talk about in that particular instance but it's like what does it mean to place food in a historical environment or in historical environs? i think thinking about your book there's so much that we can draw from it in terms of analyzing all sorts of these kinds of institutions and these locations that present jewish culture on a platter or try to anyway I just want to thank you. This has been really great. This is a lot of fun. It's a a great book. There's so much to talk about here. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jason, and for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it.
0: And thanks to you for listening to our conversation with Rachel B. Gross about her book, Beyond the Synagogue. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.